We're going to be in Psalm 99 today, so if you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalm 99. I'm going to be going to a bunch of other passages. We'll probably just kind of stay anchored, anchored there. Psalm 99. So I was thinking this week about the first time that I saw my wife, uh, Melissa Martin, right here with the denim in the front. Um, what I was confronted with when I saw her was this rather large mop of curly hair. That was the first thing I saw when I saw her. My first thought was, uh, I like that mop. Um, I want to get to know the girl behind that mop, and I should probably stop referring to her as mop uh, like right now. Um, eventually, I got some additional information about her, which was uh, that she worked at Home Depot. Um, I don't know if she wanted anybody to know that, but that's what was going on. She worked at Home Depot. She drove a forklift, and she owned a truck. And lo and behold, I, was, I, I, I liked that, too. I was kind of pumped on that. Um, but I still wondered what she was really like. I didn't really know her yet. And so as we begin our series, the first of a six-week series on what we're calling the attributes of God, the main question we'll be asking is this, what is God like? What is God like? Um, And let me qualify up front that this will be, man, this is going to be far from an exhaustive exploration into the attributes of God, or a better word for that maybe is the character of God, which by the way is inexhaustible. But what we're going to do is we're going to do our best, and we're going to do our best in the hope and prayer that we'll gain a, a, just a richer, a more beautiful, and more biblical understanding of who God is, and, and it's for these three reasons, all right? The first reason is so that our eyes might be opened to a deeper reality of God's glory, deeper reality of God's glory. Number two, that our hearts might be filled with greater satisfaction and greater affection for Jesus Christ. Somebody prayed for me the other day and they said something that was so interesting to me, something I'd never prayed for somebody on the spot. They said, God, I pray that Ronnie would be satisfied in you today. And I feel like I pray that, but I never pray it like that. That's one of our aims is that we would be filled with greater satisfaction for Jesus. And then number three, that our joy may become full as we, as we just seek to better know the God that knows us and to live out the gospel that Christ lived for us. Now, by the way, like the, those three points could be like the three aims every Sunday, no matter what series we're in. And maybe I'll repeat those every time we start a new series. I don't know. Call me crazy. I might roll that way. But for now, those are the three aims for this particular series. And the reason why we're going to take this series, which by the way, uh, that is, uh, that's Hannah Thompson's art uh, right there. If you guys want to give it up for Hannah, right? You guys are like, I don't know what I'm clapping for. But the reason why we're going to do this, we're going to explore God's character through the Psalms is because in them, we see how God's people personally interact with and express themselves to a God who is both holy and sovereign and gracious and loving and actually full of wrath uh, against sin. So that's why we're going to take us through the Psalms because we'll be able to see the way men and women interact with a God uh, who is not like them and as we'll see this morning is wholly unlike them. So with that, we're going to begin this morning with God's holiness. The one thing we want to know that we need to know about God's holiness is that it is sort of like the the overarching attribute that hangs over all the character qualities that God has, right? So God is is loving, God is love, but but it's not just any kind of love, it's a holy love, right? So God is gracious, but it's not just any kind of graciousness. It's a holy grace. It's a holy mercy. So this holiness of God, it sort of sets itself over into every single quality that we're going to be talking about over the next six weeks that God has. 
So we want to begin our morning with God's holiness. We want to begin our morning by defining what the heck holiness is. And this is what it means. It's simply a word that means set apart. Holiness means set apart. Professor uh, theologian Wayne Grudem, some of you guys have heard of Wayne Grudem, he says this, he says, holiness means that God is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. Now, there is a lot to unpack uh, in that statement. So let me just say that we, we lack language to communicate everything there is to know about God's holiness. Myself and, and Pastor Chris and Scott, we were sitting on Tuesday discussing this, and we just kept hitting a wall. I don't, I don't know how do we say it like this, and how do we say it? We lack language. We lack, we lack language to describe God's uh, holiness. And, and you know, I, so I, I, can, I can raise my voice I can use some dramatic gestures, which you're like, like you're doing now, Ronnie, like, which, like you all know that I do, right? But the Holy Spirit is the one who has to reshape our hearts into a better understanding and appreciation and affection for God's holiness and for his holy character. So we are relying, we are depending on him to do that for us. And what we see from Scripture is that God himself identifies himself as holy, And not only that, but in the process of identifying himself as being set apart, he calls his people to be holy and to be set apart like him. In Deuteronomy 7, uh, Moses tells the Israelites, he says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And then he says, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And then Paul tells the church in Rome, in Romans 1, that they have been called to be God's holy people. Now, here's where the rub comes in for us, okay? There's a tendency in churches today to bring God down to a level of casualness and commonness, right? Because we are uncomfortable in our natural state. Man, we're uncomfortable when you start talking about the holiness of God. So what we do is we try to bring God down to a level of commonness in an attempt to rebrand him. Companies like rebranding, man, we got to come up with a new brand. We got to come up with something that will define who we are. And what we do with God a lot of times is we attempt to rebrand him into the image of someone we're comfortable with and fits our image of what we think God should be like and what he wants us to be like, right? And again, you even see it in churches. Like churches just rebrand all the time. They come up with catchy slogans, you know, no imperfect people allowed. You've probably seen, seen some of those slogans, right? That, that churches go to rebrand themselves. That again, try to, re, try to grab the bar and bring it down, bring God down to our level. But that is not the picture that we see of God in Scripture. The bar just continually needs to get raised in our minds about who God is and uh, his, his holiness, Because anything else is just foolish and it's just dangerous thinking. For example, all right, nobody packs an inner tube for a trip to Niagara Falls, okay? You guys follow me on that? The falls are not for recreational use. If you've ever been to the falls, only a lunatic would think it was safe to take the family out for just a little quick swim before lunch at the falls, right? Nobody does that. The healthiest fear a human being can have is a right reverence for God's holiness so that we glean a clear understanding of what we're called to be as his church, which is set apart. So Psalm 99, let's dive right in. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to kind of pick it apart. It says this, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. 
The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. And in the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them and they kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord, our God, is holy. That's God's word. So what this is saying to us in a nutshell is that because God is holy and because God is just and because God is merciful, we must then worship and exalt him. So let's go to the first point of God's actual holiness. God is holy. The 19th century uh, pastor, theologian Charles Spurgeon said that God's holiness, what he said about it, listen, he said, God's holiness is a truth that should stir the depths of our nature. And so when we look down here on verse 1, the psalmist feels real stirred, right? When you look at the language here, he feels real stirred when he writes things like, let the people tremble and let the earth quake. Why? Why is that? Because it says right after, because the Lord reigns. Because the Lord is over all, he sits enthroned. Because the Lord loves justice, not just any justice, but a holy justice. Because the Lord establishes equity, and it's not just any equity, it's a holy equity. Because he executes justice. Why? Because he is holy. He is set apart. He is not us. He is the creator. This is where we need to get uncomfortable. This is where we need to become unsettled in our seats a little bit. It's like when you mention the word earthquake to a Californian, all right? Nobody starts LOLing, right? Nobody starts laughing out loud. Everybody's like, wait, what, did you, what, what, what was the word you just said, brother? You know? And, I, and so we said it a lot on sabbatical because we knew we were getting out of there, right? So we could joke about that, right? But nobody starts laughing. So what does this people-trembling, earthquaking holiness, what does it look like? Well, Scripture actually unpacks some real-life encounters that men have when they are confronted face-to-face with God's holiness. We go to Exodus 3, and what we see is that God appears to Moses as a burning bush, as flames of fire in a burning bush. I don't know, like, that hasn't happened to me recently, right? I haven't gotten the visitation from God in the bush, at home, the rose bush, all burning but not burning up, right? And what happens is that God warns Moses, and this is what he says to him. He says, Mo, he says, stay where you are, Take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. It was a merciful command to give Moses some level, right, of understanding of just who he was facing, of just who he was confronting. It's like when you grab a pan out of the oven, you don't dare touch that thing without a pot holder, right? I mean, I don't know, do you? You guys are all, yeah, that's what I do all the time. My hands are like steel, Ronnie. Um, But you don't dare grab it without a pot holder because you expect pans cooking in ovens to be hot. I mean, yeah, I'm taking us on a kindergarten right now, right? It's a rational response. A pot holder to a hot oven is a rational response. Moses responds 
rationally to God because you know what it says he does? It says he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God after God gave him that information. I mean, I don't remember the last time I was afraid to look at something. I mean, have you, has that happened to you? When's the last time you were beholding a sight and you were actually afraid to look at it? You were afraid for your life, for your eyes, to actually behold a sight that made you fear for your life. That doesn't happen to us ever. I don't care how many scary movies you've seen. And then we go to Isaiah 6, the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And this brother receives a vision of God seated on the throne in the temple while the seraphim, the angels, called out to one another saying, we just sang it, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. It says the thresholds of the temple shook and the whole place was filled with smoke and the first words to emerge from Isaiah's lips are, woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Because what people back in those days understood was that you cannot see God and live because of his otherness, because of his holiness, because of his set-apartness. We go to Revelation 1. The Apostle John receives a vision from the Lord on the island of Patmos. You know what he does? He describes his encounter with God like this. This is what he says about his encounter with God. He says, as someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Then he finishes by saying, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Like the sun shining in all of its brilliance? And you've got to picture that. Like if the sun ever comes out again around here, what we're going to be able to do is spend a second looking at the sun and seeing if our eyes can bear the brilliance of it because they actually can. This is how, this is how John finishes his, uh, his account. He said, when I saw him... I fell at his feet, though dead. We don't have those kind of confrontations with God. But what's interesting about God is that that's still the same God that we worship this morning when we were singing those songs. It's still the same God we're worshiping today as we open his word. He is unchanging. I mean, you realize who these men were. You realize, you realize who these men are that we're talking about. We're talking about Moses. We're talking about Isaiah. We're talking about John. We're talking about men of God, who he used as mouthpieces to proclaim his word, to proclaim his gospel. Prophets and apostles, they describe their encounter with God's holiness like an encounter with death. Why? Because God is not like us. That's why. Exodus 15, 11. I remember after God had miraculously parted the Red Sea, he saved the people, and then he drowns the, the uh, Egyptians who go into the middle of the sea while it's still parted, and he just folds over the water on them to save his people. Moses sings this song, and this is what he says. He says, who among the gods is like you, Lord? He asks the question. He says, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? That's what came out of his mouth. Psalm 77.3 says, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? 
So here's what's interesting for us as we just get right into this psalm, understanding that things happen when we are confronted with God's holiness. Things start trembling and quaking. Trembling for, before God, what we learn here, is actually it's, it's not wrong. What's wrong is when we don't. What's wrong is when we've lost our sense of awe for God's holiness. Proverbs 28.14 tells us, Blessed is the man who always trembles before God. But whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. So the same God who is holy, who is set apart, not like us, also has an uncommon, not like us kind of holy justice. You look down in verse 4. The king in his might loves justice is what it says. He's established equity. He's executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. God is a king who loves justice is what it says. What is justice? How do we define justice? Not how do we define justice, right? You see the tendency there? How does the Bible define justice? Well, in a nutshell, the Bible defines justice, among other things, as the righting of wrongs. As the righting of wrongs. Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, this is what he says. He says, biblical justice finds its feet on the ground in four areas, okay? This kind of justice that comes from God as a king who loves justice. Number one, It cares for the vulnerable, okay? A holy justice cares for the vulnerable. Two, it reflects the character of God. Three, a holy justice pursues right relationships. And number four, it's generous. So holy justice is generous because in all those four things that Keller brought out, this is the character we see coming out of God's holiness. Cares for the vulnerable, reflects a particular character that is God-like because he is God. It's not God-like, it's God. He pursues right relationships and is generous. Now, Keller makes the point that in the Bible, listen up, we see God urging his people to do some things in terms of justice, in terms of the way that we're supposed to understand justice. God urges his people to do things like take care of widows, right? To take care of orphans, to take care of immigrants and the poor. We see that all the way through the Bible. I mean, that is a theme from beginning to end. So for us today, how we might think of that today for us, this would include refugees. This would include immigrant workers. This would include the homeless. This would include single parents. This might include elderly people. That's one of the ways that we show justice to the people that will model the justice that God has commanded us to show out of his holiness, loving kindness, and mercy. God loves and defends those who lack social and economic power. Do you know that? Do you know that God identifies with the weak and powerless? So we lack justice when we don't seek justice the way God told us to be just. Psalm 68.5 says, Father of the fatherless, protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. This is not political. This is biblical. This is what God is like. This is God's heart towards us. Keller goes on to say this, if you are trying to live in accordance with the Bible, the concept and call to justice are inescapable. We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Doing justice includes not only the righting of wrongs, 
but generosity and social concern, especially, he says, towards the poor and the vulnerable. So let's go a little bit deeper here. As people created in the image of God, what this means is we have souls that reflect God's character. And we long for justice, don't we? We long for righteousness to prevail. When we see somebody wrong, something rises up in us. We long to see wrongs righted. So when we cry out for justice and mercy, you know what happens when we do that? God hears us. Because we now are about the things that God is about. What did we just do last week? Well, we recognized the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, who was an example of a man who stood before a broken culture and said, amongst many other things, black men and black women are made in the image of God and are of equal worth and dignity. That's what That's what MLK said. That's what he stood for. Now, this is nothing less than the holy, just, and merciful heart of God. Why? Well, because God deeply cares about those who are mistreated, about those who are oppressed, and about those who are sinned against by unjust people and unjust systems. This is not political. This is biblical. This is what God is like. This is the holy call because it's the call of a holy God. Isaiah chapter 1:17 says this: Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. And then all the way in Isaiah 61 it says, For I the Lord love justice. He said, I hate Robbery. I hate wrongdoing. The hope of the Christian is that someday all wrongs will be righted. All injustice will be redeemed because Christ bore all wrongdoing and all injustice from a holy God on the cross. Do you see how we we get to there from this every single time? Since we, listen, since we didn't get the justice that we deserved we can extend the mercy and grace we were given instead. So here's a question. Does what I say, does what I just said, does that bother you? Does that bother you? Consider, if it does, that it might bother you because your justice, listen, is different than God's. Here's what I mean by that. Our justice is common, earthly, selfish, and unholy. Not all the time. But it doesn't begin from a place of holiness. But Christians are those who conform themselves to God's righteousness, who delight themselves in God's law like we looked at in Psalm 1 last week. So that means our holiness now, because of that, is not like the world's. Our holiness is not like CNN's holiness. Our holiness is not like Fox News's holiness. All right? Because we have an other. We have a separate. 
We have a holiness now that exists in a different category. And you should be glad that God's justice is not common, that is not earthly, that is not selfish, because you'd receive justice like I would for my sins instead of the uncommon, unearthly, unselfish, and holy mercy and forgiveness he provides instead. That's what's so surprising about the holiness of God. That's what's surprising and shocking and doesn't make any sense or give us any kind of earthly category when we talk about a holy God. Because when we understand his holiness and his justice and that our guilt before him is deserving of justice for our own sin, it's strange what we read here about the response of a holy God. It's strange that any of us right here are contemplating lunch right now, right? But why are we? Because God's justice is not like our justice. Because his justice is merciful. And that's the third part. God is merciful. God's mercy is established in verse 1 when it says, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. This refers to the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. Back when the children of Israel used to have this portable temple that they used to carry around and wherever they would set it up, the presence of God would fill it. But this refers to the, the tabernacle where blood was sprinkled to make atonement for sin. And then he goes down here uh, talking about, uh, in verse 6, talking about uh, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. He brings us back to the priests and the prophets who were mediators for the people of Israel, who were pleading with God for mercy, who were atoning for the sins of the people by throwing blood against the altar and offering burnt offerings. So what we see from this, what we're reminded of when we see Moses, Aaron, and Samuel is that although God is holy and just, it's through the gift of prayer, these mediators going to God in prayer, it's through that gift that God hears our pleas for mercy and forgiveness, and he does not give us the justice that we deserve. And the beautiful thing about these mediators is that they look forward to Christ, who is the mediator God avenged for our wrongdoings so that we might receive divine mercy over divine justice. Because of Christ's atonement for our sins, because of the sprinkling of his blood, we can worship God at the holy mountain of the cross where Jesus reconciles sinners to God by the shedding of his blood because he took the justice we deserved and instead now presents us with mercy and forgiveness. So what should God's holiness do for our hearts? What should God's holiness transform in us? What should it change in us? To have a... a, a better view, to have a more right view of God's holiness, understanding it the way that we've been looking at it this morning in Psalm 99. Number one, it should transform our awe of God. It should transform our awe of God. It's such a hard word. It's such a hard word for us to grasp when we're talking about God. But here's the thing. When God becomes common, all right, I need you to listen. It means we've made gods now out of common things. That's what's happening. But you know what's interesting is that we tend to praise uncommon and transcendent things with almost little effort, right? And listen to somebody talk about their trip to the Grand Canyon. 
Listen to somebody talk about LeBron James, right? Listen to someone talking about an amazing movie they saw, or a great performance. And nobody has any problem just telling you how struck they were by the beauty, by the talent, by the, by the amazing ability, right? We express our awe towards things that exceed our own abilities, and we don't really have a hard time doing that. We esteem things that are greater than us, and what happens is by delighting in something more delightful than ourselves, if I can phrase it that way, we reflect the actual wonder of it. We reflect the actual wonder of the thing that we're trying to tell everybody is so great. So when we were, uh, the last three months, we did a lot of hiking, and there were these amazing cliffs at this place called Los Osos. Don't make me say that again. Um, And so we would hike, and it was just this cliff that followed, you know, looking, you know, 50 feet above the ocean, and it's just this this crazy thing. Um, But here was what was interesting, is we did that hike so much, by the fourth or fifth time that we got there, it's... It wasn't, as, it wasn't as amazing. It started to become common. And here's what we found out is that if we didn't talk about it, like if we didn't intentionally walk along the cliffs looking out on the ocean, it just remained common to us. So every time we walked, this is what we did. We would, we would start pointing things out, right? We would start exclaiming over things. We would start delighting in things that we've already seen. We'd point to the sea lions. Uh, you know, Melissa get all pumped when she'd see the water spouting out of the whales you know, 50, you know, 50 feet away. Um, man, we'd find all these little hidden beaches and these coves, and they were, they were amazing. And we'd see all the unusual shapes of the rocks that the oceans and the waves were creating. We had to continue to talk about it. We had to continue to be amazed and to speak of the awe that it filled us with or that it was supposed to fill us with because it became common when we stopped praising it. It became common. So God's holiness, it moves us into exaltation. And the more we exalt and the more that we praise and the more that we worship, the more God's awe and the sense of it fills us more deeply, more widely. So God's holiness should transform our awe of God. Number two, it should transform our heart for justice and mercy. God's holiness exposes our need for mercy desperate need for mercy. If God gave us the justice we deserve for our sin, we would be ruined, like Isaiah pointed out. But because God extended his mercy to us through Jesus Christ, we can become more just. We can become more merciful. We can become more generous. We can become a church who are on the front lines of helping the helpless, of caring for the poor, of speaking out against injustice, of being a voice for those who don't have one. And you know what? I already know that some of you do that here. I know that some of you already do that here. Your heart for mercy is huge. And the stories of your generosity, even to our church family alone, man, they get around. They get around. I hear about them. Other people hear about them. But God's holiness should transform our heart. It should fill our heart with a greater desire for justice, for mercy, for caring about the uncared for. We want that to be one of the aims of this church. We want to be known as a people who is denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and looking at the people in the margins and giving them the love and care that nobody else is giving them. Is that not the call of the church? That is the call of the church. And then finally, God's holiness should transform our desire for worship. 
Not just on Sunday morning, not just the five songs we sing during our service, but having a heart for God being preeminent in all things, over all things in our life. So what is God like? Well, God is holy. And in his holiness, he is just. And he is full of mercy and forgiveness. Although, it says, he will avenge wrongdoing. And he avenges wrongdoing to preserve his holiness. This reality that we've been talking about all morning, it transforms all these things in us. It transforms our awe of God, our heart for justice and mercy. It transforms our desire for worship, to praise and exalt the holy name of God. Because of Christ, the holiness of God will be what we become as we are becoming more holy. And Psalm 11.7 gives us our great hope. It says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. We are all moving towards beholding the face of Jesus. And as we are a church that understands more deeply and clearly the holiness of God, we get glimpses of it all the time. As we are moving to a time when all injustices will be redeemed and all wrongs will be righted. That is the hope. That is the good news. Amen? Let's pray. God, we admit to you that you are holy and that we don't understand it very well many times. We acknowledge, Lord, that our greatest tendency is to want to bring you down to our level, to make you common. But we know that there is no joy in that. And we know that there is no favor and grace from you in that when we live lives that perpetuate that lie. So God, we pray that you would teach us your character, teach us your attributes over the next six weeks. Let us remember who we serve, that you are a holy God, that you are just but that you are merciful and that that holy, just, justice and mercy requires worship from us, Lord. Where we come to you pleading for mercy because we don't do it as we should and we know because of Christ we have that grace, we have that mercy. You answer our prayers. You are slow to anger. You are steadfast in your love. You are patient with your people who don't always live as holy representatives of who you are. So thank you for the grace that we receive from you. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would be on the front lines of remembering those who don't have a voice, remembering those who don't have social or economic power, that we can stand in the gap for them, that we can care about them, that we can comfort them with the comfort we've been given in Christ. Help us do that. Lord, and thank you for doing that for us every day. Thank you that because you're holy, it means all of these things will inevitably be true about you as well. Thank you for the assurance of that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.